Welcome to the Voodoo Power Podcast. Welcome to Plates and Pancakes. We're sitting down today with Matt Winning. Matt is a three-time world champion powerlifter. He has directed over 6,000 troops in strength, conditioning, and wellness for the U.S. Army, including infantry and ranger divisions. He holds a master's degree in biomechanics and a bachelor of science in exercise science from Ball State University, where he is a member of the school's Hall of Fame. He has been an advisor for the NFL, an international speaker for the NSCA, as well as a contractor for Border Patrol, Airborne Divisions, and the Pentagon. Some of his lifting accomplishments are 2008 equipped all-time world record with a 2,665 total. 2011 all-time world record equipped squat of 1,197.6 while also remaining top five in the world from 2005-2011. Matt moved into the raw powerlifting world where he set the all-time world record squat of 832. And in 2016, he beat that feat with another world record of 865. He pressed an incredible 611 in a full meet. He has the second best total of all time at 2,204 at 308, top three of all time subtotals in history. So welcome to the show, Matt. Yeah, no problem, man. So I guess to start out with, I just watched a presentation you did. You were working with uh, some firefighters. And we kind of break into some, it could be controversial in the strength and conditioning world, fitness world. You you hit on the number that, 80% 80% of the population has back issues. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's actually, you can look that up on the Internet. That it's eight out, of, eight out of ten people will experience some sort of debilitating back pain in their life. So 80% of a physical issue for the entire population, regardless of what they do in a job, is a pretty excessive amount. The reason that you see that is because, one, um, we have a lot of superior tightness, especially in the hip flexor. We got turned off glutes. We have lower backs that are super weak. We have hamstring to quadricep imbalances, which put us in precarious positions when picking things up or just moving in general. Um, and a lot of people don't have good posture if we talk athletics or especially in the lifting realm, um, whether it be tactical or powerlifting or anything like that they start to jump into the compound movements before they fix any of their structural weaknesses. And then that causes a lot of cascading effects down the road because the body positioning and um, body control and all those other factors become such a huge problem. And then you're building strength on top of uh, weaknesses and improper motor patterns, which just leads to more issues. Oh, I guess where the controversial part would come in is, the majority of the population is scared to, they're just scared to death of deadlifts mm-hmm. for, for athletes and, and the rest of the population. Should we be including some sort of sumo pull in? How can we, how can we help fix this? I kind of believe that deadlifts probably aren't the best place to start. Um, a lot of people, you know, compound movements, in my opinion, should be um, earned, not done. So, if I had to do all over again, and luckily I was around a lot of very high-level coaches even as a kid, um, we didn't initially start with the deadlift unless it was technical proficiency. We did a lot of hamstring curls. We did a lot of back extensions and a lot of abdominal work and then learned how to deadlift, and the deadlift never became an issue. I find that if you start with compound movements without the lack of coaching, proper assessments from higher-level lifters and things of that nature or people with high-level biomechanical or physical therapy degrees, 
can lead to issues, not always, but can. And um, so I, I'm a huge fan of earning the compound lifts, you know, with proper technique and proper muscle imbalance correction before the compound movements are corrected because technique, in my opinion, is always developed on which muscles you're firing at what time. So if your body, if you have a good connection to your spinal cord muscles and your glutes and your hamstrings and all of those things work together, it's like clockwork teaching somebody how to deadlift because they know how to use those muscles. If you just throw somebody in a compound movement without any previous instruction of how to function, activate, or potentiate those muscle groups, then what ends up happening is that you, no matter you can coach until you're blue in the face, you're not going to learn how to do it properly. Your background started out, I mean, you were always in a gym, always enjoyed the, the strong lifts, being strong, but you went to Ball State to work with athletes. You got to work with some incredible teams over the years. How did you find you were able to, like now with what you're doing, translate what you did at Westside, how you built powerlifting, and move that more into athletics and, and help guys from the NFL, collegiate athletes? How were you able to bridge that gap? Well, I got really lucky because the head strength coach, which is crazy because he works for me now as an online coach on the website, Wade Russell, played for the Dolphins and the Bengals. And he was six foot six and had a four seven five forty back in nineteen eighty. So dude's a freak. He went at nineteen years old when I first started school, so I waited a year out of high school, making sure I knew what I wanted to do and not waste my money. Um, I started going over and seeing Louis Simmons and then I'd come back to Wade with all this information on bands weren't even being used yet. It was all chains and speed days and all this other stuff that I had never really seen before. And I would bring it back to Wade and Wade would be like, well, screw it. Let's try it with the teams. And that really was awesome because Wade never really had a massive ego on under, even though he had been around the strength conditioning realm since it was pretty much initiated. He became the head strength coach at Ball State in 1984. Most people didn't even have a strength program in the colleges. So uh, there were only a handful of schools that even had a strength conditioning program at the time. So he was kind of one of the innovators, especially in the Midwest, but he never had a real ego and was willing to try a lot of this advanced stuff that Louis was showing me uh, back in the late 90s and early 2000s. So the integration of utilizing powerlifting and dynamic work and chains in my own training was very easily meshed over to a lot of the athletes we were training at the time. So I kind of saw within reason what I felt would translate and what I felt was more for powerlifting. And so even at a young age, um, I was able to play around with a lot of that stuff where maybe in a different area or a different scenario, some of those coaches wouldn't have been so uh, open to trying new things, feeling like they knew everything or there was an ego attached to something. So I, I've always had that ability to do that. So, um, you know, we had, I want to say in 2002, Ball State went to the NIT, and I think we barely got beat by Kansas or Duke, but we beat every team in the country but one. And that was when I started realizing, like, we were probably the first Mac school to use chains because of me. Um, and I'm not saying that that helped, but it definitely didn't hurt. And um, we had, I want to say in 99 or 2000, we had, the largest offensive line in all of college football. And we were playing around with a lot of this stuff. So we didn't have necessarily great skill players because it was a very small division one school, but we had five, six guys go to the NFL from those teams. 
So we had a lot of individual players that were really good. Um, and a lot of guys that played overseas or arena ball and stuff like that. So I was always kind of intertwined with that. And then I got my first taste of a little bit of politics. I, uh, did my first internship at University of Texas under Mad Dog. And it was a completely different level of athlete that we were working with down there because at that time, well, even always, but Texas was one of the top three football schools in the country. And so Mad Dog and Wade, because they were both similar ages, were kind of the innovators of strength conditioning. So Wade, Wade's interns and name carried a lot of clout. And what people don't realize is even though that like they heard in the intro that I went to Ball State University for my master's and my undergrad, that was the number one school in the country for exercise science and biomechanics in the world at that time. Um, at least, at least one of the top in the world, definitely the top in the country because we were doing work with NASA at the time. So, um, it was just a combination of multiple scenarios that all came together at once. I was training at Louis. I was working at one of the best colleges in the country for strength conditioning research. Um, and so all of it just came together. Now, taking the bands and chains over to the sports side, what increases did you see there? I mean, now it seems like everybody's on board with overspeed eccentrics and building the backside of the lift. But you guys were the innovators of it. What quick carryovers were you seeing that made you think, hey, this is working? Because it was such a new environment, it created a new growth. You know, it's like, it's one of the things that, do I believe bands and chains and different kinds of bars work? Yes, but not for the reason that everybody else thinks. Like you're talking compensatory acceleration and all these other things. Those are all great points, and I do think that they're very valid. But when you're dealing with higher-level athletes, especially, you know, um, scholarship-level D1 athletes, guys that are going to play in the pros, they've seen traditional weights for a while. So when you introduce a new stimulus, you see new growth. So what we saw was guys were not only getting stronger but getting quicker because their strength was turning into a dynamic fashion, and we weren't just focusing on just raw brute strength, which is important, but you have to translate it into speed. And so I feel that the dynamic method is the bridge gap between turning strength into power. And that's where when you have environments such as chains and bands, it really starts to accelerate the ability for maximal strength to become a reality and power. Now, the other thing, with all the athletes you work with and yourself, the one thing I've heard you talk about a lot is you, you've had a very long career remaining injury-free. What do you what do you attribute that to? Well, it's a mixture of things. I mean, the first thing that people are going to think, well, Matt's just lucky or he has good genetics, and that may be true. I mean, obviously, somewhat hard to measure that. But what I feel, in my personal opinion, is I'm very good at, at rate of perceived exertion. So. When my body feels like it needs to do a break, I give it a break. I don't, you know, I, I'm really, really pissed right now at the entire fitness community absorbing everything that they think intensity is the winner. And in reality, what the winner is is consistency, not intensity. You know, if you feel like shit, you have to be careful because your body's telling you something. But the problem is, is most people are too uneducated and too bullheaded to listen. So, what I find is rate of perceived exertion has really saved my ass the last 10 or 15 years of switching from a percentage-based understanding to a rate of perceived exertion understanding. So what I find is that the reason I was able to stay away from injury on another aspect is that I'm constantly rotating the type of pressures I'm putting on my body. 
So I may be in some way, shape, or form, say, bench pressing every week, but that type of bench press that I'm doing has a different resistance, a different position, or a different speed at all times. So the body is not getting worn down in the exact same way at the exact same position all the time. And this is the hardest thing to beat into people because you have one side of the population that goes, well, I don't have the money or the time or experience to use all this different type of equipment. Or you have the other type, well, you know, training specifically is going to get you to the, the goal the fastest. In reality, that's only true for the first couple of years of training. And then what you'll find is progressive overload really doesn't work. So you got guys, and I'm not busting ass, but you got guys like Mark Ripto that just tell people to keep adding five pounds on the bar. Well, anybody that's been in the, in the strength game for any length of time is going to realize that only works for a very short period of time. And then you better get a lot smarter because the body is such a complex organism that the Russians and the, and the East Germans figured this out years ago. The new book I got coming out within probably sometime in 2024 is going to go over all of those references and why you have to have eventually a rotating system in order for your body to get better. Because if it was as simple as just going in and training hard all the time, wouldn't we have so many more guys that are stronger? Because we don't, because it's not that easy. Now, going into what you were talking about with the Russians, they've spent more money on developing a system probably than anybody in the world. I mean, they dedicated thousands of scientists to figuring out the best way to have athletes prepared for longevity. Mm -hmm. you, you've spent quite a bit of time working with different Russians. Uh, Furko Shansky, I know you did quite a bit of work with him. I was kind of curious how that played out. You had to use a translator. You had to use his daughter. You had to do different things. Uh, how great of an experience was that? Well, you know, Verkashansky was like an open book to me because he knew I bled what I wanted to know. I wasn't just going to ask him a question. I was going to ask him a question and go and use it until my eyeballs popped out of my fucking head to figure out if it was good or if it was bad. And that's where he really had a lot of drive for me. But he, along with, I had direct contact with Zatsdorsky as well, which ran the entire Central Institute of Physical Culture. And the reason I had that connection was Ball State. Because my professor, Dr. Kramer, was his adjunct professor at Penn State before he transferred to Ball State. So um, that that was a hell of a connection that you just can't even buy. And once he started realizing that I was taking his books and utilizing the, the system in which he was trying to explain, he was an open book because he knew I wanted to know so I could get the highest attainable numbers that I possibly could and then learn how to hybrid that into different um, ways of training basketball, football, any other sport that I was going to be in dealt with, you know, and um, that's, that, that kind of was a, uh, a special point in my life. I would say from 1999 to 2007 was having the capacity to have these guys that were basically the godfathers of understanding all forms of periodization. And it was funny listening to Zatsworski talking to him about, you know, how the, the conjugate system evolved. And he said it evolved through necessity because, see, the Bulgarians would take thousands of athletes to find five. You know, they would take thousands of athletes to these long-term schools. What a lot of people don't realize is that the Bulgarians would go to these testing protocols, not only in physicality, but also with x-rays. So if you were a six-year-old kid that had, say, great genetics for 
sports or for, you know, um, future development, they would do x-rays. And if you had oblong shaped hip sockets or something else like a slight scoliosis, you weren't even allowed in the school. They would basically fork cut you immediately. The Russians didn't have that level of uh, look, look to him. They wanted to take and see if they could make a slightly above average people world class. So what you found is the Russians would take thousands to find two, or I'm sorry, the Bulgarians would take thousands of athletes in one weight class to find two to take the pressure of the Olympics, whereas the Russians had literally hundreds of athletes per weight class that they could rotate at any time um, because they trained so much smarter. And they had a better scientific uh, ability. The, the Bulgarians were more like, this is the system, fit the system, or get out. And that meant structurally and, you know, they only used upwards of about eight to ten exercises. The Russians had close to a hundred exercises and literally had hundreds of people in each weight class ready to be the next master sport or the next Olympic champion because they had thousands of researchers studying everything. The negative was is that the Russians were so good at what they did, they were secretive in their own camps. So now what you find is a lot of guys like myself, Louis, Dave Tate, um, uh, Charles Poliquin at his, at his time, they had more understanding of the training system of the Russians than some of the Russians did themselves because Camp A and Camp B weren't talking, right? So Medvedev's school and some and Roman's school – those guys trained completely differently to get to the top, and then they started finding by the end of the Soviet era that the conjugate system was allowing not only more athletes but less injury because the rotation of the pressure was changing so often that the burnout rate was so much lower. And then what you start to find is that the East Germans basically took the best of both worlds and conjoined them. They had a lot of money per capita. They had all, they had access to all of the Russian science and they actually had better athletes because they were better fed and their training halls were a higher level. So it would have been interesting to see East Germany hold together another five or eight years to see what would have happened. Um, but in reality, the East Germans had the highest level of coaching science and athletes because their economy was better. Their athletes genetics were better. And their training was all learned by the Russians. So uh, it would have been interesting, Not probably not soci- socially-wise, but athlete-wise, it would have been interesting to see the East Germans last a little bit longer. Okay, yeah, that's something you don't hear a lot of guys kind of delve into is the East German side. I, I see where that could definitely play a-, a role in where weights were heading had the Soviet Union not broken down at the time. Yeah, the, the-, the Eastern Bloc had some very uh, – limiting factors in its capacity, most of it being financial, but the East Germans had high levels of money, all the access to all the Eastern Bloc country training, and some of the best coaches and training facilities that the world had ever seen. It just didn't last long enough for really it to see, and they were so secretive. Again, the Bulgarians, the Germans, the Russians, in their own little camps, that you found when all that shit degraded, uh, Medvedev and a couple other guys were the, and Alexiev were the only ones really writing about this new wave conjugated system that became very difficult to find information on, uh, mostly because some of the old Soviet coaches didn't use that. They used the old Bulgarian system, which was more cutthroat. So the difference is the Russians in certain camps were utilizing a system that, that the system fit the athlete, whereas the Bulgarian, the athlete fit the system or they didn't, they didn't lift in the system. And, 
what you find is, and what I can't get people to understand is that why would you use a system that's not made for longevity? Because for most of us, we're not the genetic freaks the Bulgarians were looking for. We're not the 5,000 people we're only looking for two. We're trying to get stronger and hopefully reduce mileage. So that's why you want to find this, the, the Russian schooling system that utilized a vast array of, of variation in their training because most of their athletes lasted two and three runs at the Olympics versus one. Yeah, and if you're going to invest that kind of money into an athlete, if you got three runs out of it, your money's spent a way yeah, better. We know in three three Olympic runs is twelve years. And to me, that's a system you want to utilize, not a system that's, you know, going to get up to the top level and you're going to be broken in one world championships and one Olympics. That to me would be the dumbest thing you could ever do because now you're going to trade off getting a little bit stronger, a little faster for a life of basically getting broke. I mean, and that's, you know, that's fine, I guess, if that's what your, your style is. But you see that that whole scenario and thought process is starting to rear its ugly head again. You know, everybody's wanting to use this cutthroat, high-volume, high-intensity training. It just breaks people in half. And, and all the athletes you're working with now, how much overtraining do you see by the time they get to you? Well, it depends on their age, but, um, you know, the other thing is people, uh, tend to avoid me as far as strength training goes if they're training stupid, because, you know, most people that already know who I am, they're not going to come to me with some stupid system that they think is going to work, you know, because they're probably already injured and now they've learned the hard way. So I'll give you an example. I have a kid named Marley. She's 13 years old. She's a 400 pound deadlifter, 200 pound bencher and a 330 squatter at 13 years old and she's not beat up yet and i had to slow her down and say look i know it's cool that you're going to get these teenage records but we need to last another 10 years to get world records that's when it's going to matter and so her dad was really into that and really understood that the longevity thing is going to be huge so I, i to be honest with you i've never seen a girl at 13 developed and has the level of passion that she has um, so I, I'm more looking towards those kind of athletes that I can hold. Um, the hard part is, is a lot of times athletes can come to you when they've already got lots of mileage and lots of injuries, and then they want the magic potion at that point. And in some ways it can be too late, you know? I've heard you talk about this and it goes back to what we were discussing earlier. It's in training. It's, it's more about what you can recover from and not necessarily how much you can do. Oh, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. It's not what you can do. It's what you can recover from. And if you can't recover from it in 72 hours and do it, do something else similar in the same muscle groups again, you're actually your total volume of loading in a month is lower. And that's where everybody screws up. They don't lay out at least a rough estimate of what they're going to do every six months. They're looking at every week or every day. You need to look at things in a longer timeline. And that's where I think we really screw up now is we have these short-term goals that lead to long-term failure because we don't have the long-term process thought down and we're not utilizing it correctly. So I think one of the biggest things that ever happened to me is I remember the first time I squatted 700 pounds, I was 21 years old, which, you know, is amazing. And Ed Cohen, one of the greatest lifters ever lived, broke 75 world records of powerlifting, comes up to me and goes, man, if you can last another six or eight years, you're going to hit 800 easy. Now, think about that for a minute. You're telling a 21-year-old kid that just broke an American record that it's going to take him six or eight more years to go up 100 more pounds. 
And for me, I enjoyed the process of training. I was like, oh, okay, no problem. I'll last. Now, I got up to 800 in a year and a half. And I remember running into him at that meet. And he goes, why did you tell me it was going to take me eight years or six or eight years to go to 800 instead of telling me it was going to take me a year and a half? He goes, because I wanted to see if you ran it for the long haul. So if he told me, you know, it was going to take me six or eight years, and I'm like, well, screw that. I'm just going to quit. That's a lot of people these days. I enjoyed the process of training, and I didn't care if it was going to take me 15 years to get to 800. I was just going to stay in the game. And that's when I started to realize it was all about pacing myself, giving myself enough time, energy, and thought process to last. And then, you know, two more years after that, I broke the all-time world record. So I think the fact of the matter is, is that he was trying to instill the long-term thought process in me. Now, do you think that's something that is overlooked at the high school level and the college level? You know, they're not looking at maybe the four-year plan for a freshman coming in. They're looking more at what can we get done this season? And then maybe we're missing something in there. Oh, oh, I mean, absolutely. And you got to remember too, that even more importantly, how many kids at a freshman year, the high school coach is trying to develop them. So then when they go division one or they go to college, they're even more prepared for that particular. No, they want what's out of them right now. And that's the level of coaching that you see. Um, you know, and sometimes the highest level of coaching can be the worst. You know, you get a kid that goes to Alabama. They're not worried about what they can do in the pros. They want a national title. So that's why you find a high percentage of the NFL comes from small schools. And the reason is because they're not ate up by the time they go. They're not all beat up with tons of injuries. By the time they go pro, they're preserved, you know. And that's what you see a lot in college ball is, okay, you might be at a really good college that's top five, but a lot of times those colleges are putting out athletes that are high injury in the pros So because they have high mileage. And so you see that in high school. You see that in college. Um, no, nobody's looking at everything in a 10-year block. They want what they can get out of the athlete right now. Yeah, yeah, just quick bursts, quick wins, and then at the end, whatever happens to the athlete, well, we'll get another one. Exactly. It's all it's all a game. That's why I'm I'm glad the athletes are getting paid what they're getting paid now. I think some, in some ways it hurts the sport a little bit with the free agency stuff and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, those teams don't care about those players. They want wins. And I think it's only fair for the players to worry about money because it's their body that they're taking through the meat grinder, right? Right, and I would agree with that. I mean, they're getting used. Yes, they get an education. That's the argument. They get an education. But they're pretty well disposable once they hit that school. They are the school's property. So at least this gives them an avenue to possibly make well, a little bit of money. And what I would tell people about that, and I agree. I totally agree. What I would say counter argument on that is go see how much a ACL reconstructive surgery costs. It costs the amount of the school for four years, right? Like you go to a really good school, what's that, 10 grand a semester? You could want to get a knee replacement or a back surgery. That's just, that's close to six figures. So where, what school are these people going to where it costs that to go to school for four years? You know, and now you're going to walk around with a, either a fake joint or a surgery, which we all know. If just because you get something surgically repaired doesn't mean it's back to normal. It might only be a fraction of what it was before it was injured. And so, and now this person's got to walk around with a screwed up joint for the rest of their life. That's not worth a college education, right? 
Uh, no, I agree. I agree 100%. Or you take somebody uh, back a few years ago when Manziel was at Texas A&M. He walks into a stadium, and everybody in the stadium's wearing his jersey. He didn't get a dime out of that other than the education, but the school made millions. Millions, millions, millions. Yeah, yeah I'm, so I'm kind of glad that they're doing that. I mean, I think in some ways that it hurts, but in other ways it helps. I don't know. I mean, there's always the catch-22. There's Nothing's black and white. Everything's gray. Yeah, you're never going to find the right answer. And now it's just made public. I mean, you can't tell me that these big universities weren't finding a way to finance their top players anyhow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just one of those things that just had to be under the table where nobody saw it. Now, I've heard you talk about the three pillars to success. Is that something that that you really try to instill into your athletes? You know, you have the education, the longevity, everything that goes into being an athlete for a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, athletes for sure. But I think really where it comes down to is being a professional in the field. If the athlete is, is really, really looking at being a coach, or looking at being, you know, somebody like me where they're going to go help other people. Uh, what I get frustrated with is every time I get on Instagram, Facebook, any, you can name it, any of them. And you got all these people telling somebody how to do something better. They have little to no education. They have little to no experience under the bar, you know, and, and you start to realize that, man, we're, we're creating more problems than good. You know, as much as it's an awesome thing that social media has given everybody an opinion, it's also equally just as bad because back in the day, if you wanted to understand something about training, you had to be popular and smart enough to write an article in like Powerlifting USA, like, you know, Louis Simmons. I remember him talking about and, and uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield and all these other guys. Think about the, the, the people that had a voice pre-internet probably were spreading better information than now because of the fact that it wasn't being tainted by 500 other dipshits telling somebody the exact wrong thing. So what I find is now I tell people how to train smart, but but these three other guys are telling me this, and I'm like, well, okay, let's go through the three pillars. What's their education level? How strong are they? And how long did they stay that strong? If you start looking at those three areas, you're going to take out 96% of the entire voices on the Internet. Yeah, that, that really knocks down the uh, the level of coaching that is available. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that starts really plugging it in, you know what I mean? And that's when you start realizing, like, I'm, and I'm not saying that everyone has to have these three pillars. I've seen guys that don't have it. But if you start and that are still putting out good information, but I'm saying in general, that's a great place to start. You know, let's look at some of the legends of strength conditioning. Just go Charles Poliquin, right? Master's degree. Team USA, he was in charge of all strength conditioning. Team Canada, in charge of all strength conditioning. Private strength conditioning coach for the prince of Saudi Arabia. Okay, like this guy's lineage of stuff was unreal. He knows what he's talking about. He has the education. He's gotten people insanely high levels. He was a pretty decent athlete himself, and he was jacked himself and trained his ass off. You know, it sucks that he had a genetic heart defect, but... You know, and that's what that's what knocked him out soon. You look at guys like Stan Efferding, for example, creator of the vertical diet, IFBB pro, all-time world record holder in powerlifting, still looks better than 99.9% of the population. He's 60 years old, and he's been doing it for 35 years. I mean, you start doing that kind of stuff, and you're like, okay, this is these aren't that many guys, right? 
yes, it's it's a very small population, and I guess that yeah. that would be where I was heading next. You've you've paid a very high price to be where you're at. I mean, when you worked at Westside, I've I've heard you talk about another thing. She couldn't have a job. The money was tight. Strength and conditioning when you're starting out, like you said, that's a very low paying job. The love of the sport has to be there, or you never would would make it. Yeah, and and like I said, you know, if you if it's passionate and you love it, it doesn't matter. What I find is, like you know, like anybody will tell you, if you're the best in the world at what you do, I don't care if it's digging ditches, you're going to make a ton of money. You know what I mean? But if you really look at strength conditioning and numbers, how many how many jobs are over say six figures? If you start looking at that, there's not that many. There's not that many pro teams, really. So let's say, let's say there's a hundred pro teams with NBA, NHL, and in, in, uh, in NFL. Okay, so you only got a hundred jobs at that level. Now in college, you probably only got fifty to a hundred colleges that pay over a hundred thousand a year. I would say maybe even less than that. And then the private sector, you only have a handful of guys that are doing really, really well that are actually selling real shit, not garbage. So if you really want to go into a field by numbers. You're talking like 0.0001% of the population that's in the fitness industry is making six figures and doing it correctly if you're not just trying to be a marketing genius with something stupid, right? I'm talking actual strength coaches. So if, if you're looking for an easy way to make a lot of money, strength conditioning is not the, not the fucking way to go, right? It's more of a passion project. I mean, it took you a long time to de- develop everything you've developed and be where you are today. I mean, it's taken a lifetime. Yeah, absolute lifetime. I started lifting when I was 11. I started making decent money when I was 35 and became, you know, very, very successful by the time I was 40. So let's look at that. That's 30 years of busting ass, right? So it's, yeah, it's, it's tough, man. But like I said, I couldn't have done it. I had some luck along the way. I couldn't have done all this without a little bit of that too. But a lot of, a lot of passion in my drive got me to the luck. You know, Louie would have never taught me all that stuff if I wouldn't have showed up at his gym and just wanted to talk about research. You know, at that place, you talk research by bleeding under the bar with four and five times body weight. That's when Louie will start telling you what he really knows. Um, you know, I would have never gotten Wade's respect if I hadn't walked in as a freshman in college and already been benching 500 pounds where I was stronger than nearly everyone that on the football team as a teenager you know, guys that were grown men. And so coming back with all that information from Louis, he looked at me as a little bit more of an equal versus some punk kid that just read some, you know, muscle and fitness thing. You know, I had some clout because I'd already put a lot of work in, even at 19. So uh, what I'm getting at is, you, you know, if you're passionate about what you want to do and you're living life, it creates a different aura around you than the average person that's just picking up a book and reading or doesn't want to actually live it. And I, I'm sad because I'm seeing strength conditioning go further and further away from that, right? Everybody either puts all their tokens into education or they put all their tokens into being a meathead, but they really don't understand how any of it works or just maybe genetic freaks or whatever. There's no, like, I, I feel that the last person that's kind of been at my range is probably Fred Hatfield. He got his PhD, you know, he broke world records. He invented the, the ISSA strength conditioning, which is whatever. I, I'm not saying it's perfect, but you think about all those things that he's done. How many other guys have done that since 1980? I mean, 
not many, you know, and so I find that it gets to be a rare that everybody lives their life like that in a 360 degree circle. Now, at the beginning of that, you touched on something I was going to ask you about. What kind of mentality does it take, first of all, to climb underneath the weights that would that would kill you in an instant, but to break world records? Yeah, the, yeah, the platform's great, but it took being in the gym every day, doing the right things to accomplish that. So mentally, where did you have to put yourself? You know, it was such a long building process to get to that level, you know. I started lifting at 11, and I broke my first world record at 28, at 17 years. So over that course of 17 years, I learned to shut down inhibit inhibition. You learn to step up to the weight, that the intensity level that you need to do those particular weights. I mean, well, I don't know if you saw, but today I did half the squats. I did um, eight, I want to say it was 840 set rep one. Then 890 set two, and then 940 set three at 40, almost 44 years old. Now, I'm gonna, why I'm telling you that is because I felt like shit this morning. I mean, I walked in the gym. I had sleep real good last night. I've had some sinus issues. When my body starts to warm up, I've done it for so long, it shuts down everything that shuts a normal person off. Like, oh, you know, my ankles don't feel very good today, or my back, my body doesn't care anymore. Like, when I step up to that, it's almost like I have this instant painkiller built in that my body just kind of zooms in on the task at hand. But that took years to develop. And sometimes when I feel the worst, my body turns on the most because it's trying to compensate. Sometimes when I walk in the gym and feel really good, I don't have a great day. And other times when I walk in, I feel terrible and I start warming up. And my body just goes, oh, he's not going to listen to this now. Screw it. Let's do it, you know. So I don't know. It, it developed for me for so many years that I don't know how it happened, but I can just, once I start zooming on that focus, it's just my body just goes into a different mode. And the guys that live with me, I've seen it a, a million times and they, they don't understand it either. You know, they'll start working up and something feels heavy to them. Something for me, when it feels heavy, my body goes into a different trance and it's like, it's like another gear in a transmission. My body's like, Something feels heavy. My body's like, oh, you want this to be heavy? Burr, kicks it into overdrive. Burr, burr, you know, just comes up. So I don't know. Some days when everything feels heavy, I have my best days. I just don't listen to it. But I don't know if it started that way. You know, I think it's hard to quantify how it happens when you started 11 years old. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then the lifters you lifted with, they like Chuck Vogelpool. I'm sure he just didn't allow for a lot of room to have a bad day. No, I mean, now it was interesting because I needed that kind of push when I was a kid. But by the time I got up to 25, 26, I'd been training around or with Chuck for six or eight years at that time. And Chuck was very um, non-understanding of people that would shut down. But as I got better and I always performed at contests, Chuck started to back off of pushing me because he knew I didn't need it. He knew that I knew what was good for me and what I needed to do to get better. And that's all he cared about. So where Chuck had an advantage over Louie in some ways is Chuck cared about meat lifts, not gym lifts. You find that if I were to look back at my career being around Louie, that Louie would get so caught up in the gym atmosphere, he would forget that, that it matters what you do in a contest. Whereas Chuck was always a little bit more thoughtful that if somebody's doing really well in a meet, He's not going to tell them to do something different. 
because he wants to keep the ball rolling. And that's where I think Chuck had a great advantage over Louie is he understood individual intensities for individual people. But as long as it was great results, he didn't care. But Louie could care sometimes. If you if he felt like you weren't given 100% in the gym, it didn't matter what you did to me, you know, sometimes. And that was, a, I think, one of his big Achilles heels is sometimes Louie could grenade more people than actually help them because he would get so caught up in the in the gym atmosphere versus the actual contest lifts. The winning warm-ups, I mean, that's going to be a part of your legacy. Everybody that's around this understands the winning warm-up and the, and the thought process. How would that have been received with those guys as opposed to coming up with that on your own later on once you kind of started developing <laughs> your own way? Man, I don't know, because see, at my timeline, when I – if let's just say I would have thought about it and I would have figured it out earlier. I don't think, I think I would have had enough leverage to try it, but I don't think I could have got the guys to do it because it was so far out of stuff that we had been doing at the time. You know, we would come in and do a light stretch and it was straight into squats. You know what I mean? And then within six or seven sets, you're up at weights that an average person couldn't even total, let alone squat. And I think in some ways that works well when you're younger. And then as you age, you start realizing where your deficiencies are as far as muscle weaknesses and things of that nature. You start realizing that it's a lot more, there's a lot more to it than just going in heavy, you know, in, in intensity. Um, the background of the winning warmup is very complex because it wasn't something that just got dropped into my hand. It was a mixture of different thought processes to get to that particular point of cognitive understanding, but um, I, I don't think it would have been taken very well at the time because I was just becoming good around those guys. I was only the top 10, maybe top five in the world at that time. I wasn't the best. You know, when you're the best in the world, everybody wants to do what you do. But at that, that time, I was still gaining my stripes. So I wouldn't have had the clout to take other world record holders and, and give them that information, even if it was right because it wasn't my time to have the reins of the group. I needed to be a follower at that time more than a leader. Uh, and that was just because of the timeline, right? You know, if Chuck's 40 and I'm 28, I'm not telling him shit. You know what I mean? That was just the way it went at that time. But as we became closer and both of us left Westside, he started to learn more from me than I learned from him. From 2008 to 2010, I felt like, I gave Chuck more than he gave me, but from 99 to 06, 07, he gave me more than I could give him because I was still earning my stripes. No, and that makes sense. That would be a progression that somebody that really wanted to learn this stuff would have to, would have to go on, you know? Right. Now with the winning warmup, I, I know you, you ran gear for a long time and you've lifted raw. Did you see the most? I guess when the winning warmup came about, you were probably more in the raw arena. One hundred percent. The winning warmups never, never were, never were in the picture with the with the gear. Um, and I think I think that it came at the right time. But I find that, and it's weird, but I find that raw lifting, and this is maybe individual, but for me, requires much more work capacity than gear. Because you're not getting any assistance with that lift. You know, when I broke those raw records, it was real raw, singlet belt, no, no knee wraps, you know, um, and 
just elk or just just wrist wraps for the bench, singlet for the deadlift. But the thing of it is, is um, the raw training needed a lot more muscle mass and ligament and tendon protection, which the high volume brings. So I think that you can mask a little bit of weaknesses with equipped lifting that you just can't with raw. That's why I feel that, and you know, this is my opinion, but I feel that Louis' lineage and legendary status would be much higher if when the raw craze hit, the, the entire gym would have switched to raw to prove that conjugate was the leading way as an advanced world-class level to develop that strength because I was the only one to do it. And that is awesome, but it's an N equals one, you know? I mean, if you look at a lot of the top lifters now, they're using more of a old 80s style linear periodization. But what I find is none of these guys are lasting very long either, which is the whole purpose of conjugate anyway, you know? And um, I think Louie would have had a higher status, you know, after everything was said and done, if he would have flipped over and done what I did, because then it would have been irrefutable, right? Because there's always that asterisk. Well, Matt, yeah, you squatted 1,200, but it's in gear. Maybe you don't know what you're talking about with training because that squat suit helped too much. We know that's not true, but for the average person, they don't know that. But you really can't refute anything when it's just knee sleeves and a belt, you know. So to keep heading down this path, I've heard it talked about many times that the box squat is wonderful for geared lifters. But for raw lifters, you can throw that away. What's your opinion on the box squat and its carryover? to the raw lifter and developing form? Well, in a variable system, you need box squats no matter what you think. Because the problem is, is that the reason the box squat works, it's like saying, if you don't believe a box squat works, then you don't believe pause benching works either. It's the same thing. You're separating the eccentric and concentric chain through a stop position. That's what makes the box squat so strong. What allows the box squat as a raw lifter is not necessarily its performance enhancement. It's the fact that it allows higher volumes of squatting with less detriment to the muscles, ligaments, tendons, because you're not getting that reactive stretch reflex in the bottom. You're actually getting something that's, I wouldn't say absorbing the energy, but it's not allowing that stretch reflex to blast on those joints. So box squatting, in my opinion, in the beginning is a great learning tool because you're not so scared to sit back because you got something underneath you. So I think that my squat technique is so good because of all the years that I used box squats, I know to push out and sit back. Then I got comfortable with nothing underneath me. Um, now, the reason that they only think it works for gear lifters is because Louis Simmons didn't have a lot of guys go raw and do well other than me, which I was kind of under my own umbrella at that time. But 50% to 60% of my squats, even I do now, are box squat style. And I think it's an amazing developer for raw technique. But the problem is, is that most people want to train so specific that they end up being generally weak. So I've seen a lot of guys that only do his raw squat and you put them in a box squat and they suck. Now, conversely, if all you do is box squat, you're going to have issues doing free squatting. But there's an optimal amount of each style of squatting that should be in place. And that's the whole idea behind conjugate. It's not that box squats or raw squats. It's not a comparison. They're a different type of movement, but conjoined in the right amount help each other. And that's where people just don't understand. Like one style of squatting can only be used for so long before it's overtrained. So if I have five or six different ways to rotate 
either in pressures or stances or boxes or no boxes, I'm allowed to squat or I can squat for multiple weeks on end without having to drop my volume because the exercise is changing. So it's a change of exercise is a change of pressure. Change of pressure reduces the joint um, exact mileage in that exact area, and it's allowing a similar movement to happen on a consistent basis. And then touching back on what you what you talked about early in that, the longevity you get. Now you can take your athletes and you're already worried about knees. You're already worried about some of the abuse they take. You rotate the box squat in. You can vary so many different things between your stances, bars. Yeah. You might get a longer lifespan out of their knees. Oh, absolutely. And their back and their hips and everything else. And more importantly, here's the deal. When have you ever seen an athlete? Let's just use this as an example. When have you ever seen an athlete that can free squat, box squat, sumo deadlift, conventional deadlift, do really good at good mornings, trains pretty well with bands and chains, and it doesn't transfer. It does because they're good at everything. Versus if you're only good at training one way, how far is that transfer going to go in an open field? Again, if you're if you're good at all different types of stances and squats and positions, why wouldn't you want to be that? Because you never know what position you're going to be in on the field in a particular sport. You could be, you know, all kinds of different ways and so what I find is not only it's a mileage thing, in my personal opinion, it's a transfer thing. If you're only good at a high bar Olympic style back squat, and then I put you in a low bar powerlifting style back squat, and you suck, your athleticism is not very good. Because I just changed the environment 10% and now you suck. Where in reality, if you're a good athlete, I should be able to rotate that tra- that training style all over the place, and you're pretty proficient in every movement if you're athletic. And if your timeline's long enough, right? So athletes should actively be switching it up to find where they're weak and then bringing those weak points up to make for a better all-around transfer to the field. Well, my question to you, my question to you is, which is just, you just answered it, what is conjugate? It's exactly what you just said. Right. You're focusing on weakest links. You're, that's dictating probably 50 to 60% of your exercise selections, both in warm-ups and accessories, and then you're rotating the main lift in order to keep the stimulation high and the mileage low and the transfer optimal. That's conjugate in a nutshell. Yeah, you're looking for a big base of your pyramid, and so you have to find the spots that aren't going to allow stability, I guess, in the building of the pyramid and then bring those up. Right. Everybody wants to build the, the pyramid reverse. They want to focus on specificity and then generalities is ignored until it's too late versus this should be reversed. No, I think it's something that get, gets overlooked because people don't want to go to the gym and work on where they're weak. They want to show everybody how strong they are in certain lifts. And that's exactly right. You know, and that's the thing is like when you're really good, you can be strong at a whim. I remember just messing around one time at the firehouse and, uh, the guys, you know, they knew how strong I was. And one of them benched like 315, right? And they're like, oh, I've been 315, which, you know, really good for a guy who's walking on the street. It's not really a great lifter. And uh, they're like, hey, Matt, can you do 315 cold? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I can. And they go, well, try it. Well, I mean, I hadn't benched uh, for a day and a half. I had benched Sunday. This was a Tuesday evening. And I laid down and did 315 for 20, and I didn't even warm up. You know, it's like 
point being is a great lifter can be put in almost any, I'm not saying that's smart, but a great lifter can be put in almost any scenario and do pretty well. If they'd have asked me to do good mornings that day, I'd have done fine. If they'd have asked me to do a light and method band squat, I'd have done fine. If somebody asked me to do a free squat, okay. Box squat, fine. My point being is like, you need to have a large library of exercises. And the other big thing that nobody wants to talk about is psychological freshness. If I'm always training a different movement constantly, how in the fuck do you get burned out? You don't. That's why I'm still going at 44 years old and been doing it for 30 years. Look at all these people that use linear periodization with no variety. Most of them get out because they're either injured or they're burnt out. Yeah, who wants to go to the gym every day and do the same stuff? It's just like beating your head against a wall. A handful of guys I've seen do that, but not many. The only guy that I could say that was a champion for quite a few years that had a very bland training cycle was Milanachev. Milanachev didn't do any variations. He didn't do anything crazy. So that's one dude. You know what I mean? Now, there was something in there that I was going to ask you about. We see bands and chains being used a lot on the eccentric side, coming down and going up, but you just brought up the lighten method. How does the lighten method transfer over to the field? Well, in different ways. So the band from the top is going to have a different style than the band from the bottom because the band at the top, the tension of the, of the band is going to be at the most at the top, right? Whereas the tension in the band is going to be the most at the bottom on a lighten method. So you're going to add more weight. So the weight, it's basically changing a pressure gradient. I wouldn't say it's better from the top than it is the bottom, but it's different, and it's different enough in a small percentage to create more growth. So the thing of it is that sometimes doing bands change from the bottom and then doing a light method from the top is changing the timing enough that the muscle doesn't understand the environment. Therefore, it tries to grow to a new stimulus, right? Um, and it could change. What I find is that the light method, works really well at, at helping you understand bar speed out on the bottom. So, like, if I'm on a squat and I got basically the band helping nothing at the top and then it helps me 100 pounds at the bottom and I learn how to react to that, then what ends up happening is that I learn how to overspeed natural weights with compensatory acceleration at a faster rate because the band is teaching me how to utilize kinetic energy. That's just my opinion and what I've felt over the years. But I don't feel that the light method is better. I just feel that it's different enough to elicit a new growth and a new stimulus out of the muscle. That was a question I'd had for, for quite a while, and I, I'd always saved it for somebody like you that had done a lot of it and then watched it be developed. Yeah, it was interesting because we always tied it from the floor first for years. And then one day it was like, why don't we fucking try this shit from the top? And we probably were the first ones to do it. I would say around 2001 or two. And we thought, wow, this really changes the position. It makes it feel awkward. We had a couple more plates to it. So what we found was the neurological drive got people disoriented with the weights on the bar. So let's just say, and this is just another factor, that I'm a 900-pound squatter and I want to squat 950. Well, mentally, if I see 950 to 1,000 because I'm using light method for multiple months on end, what do you think is going to happen in a contest when I see 950 on the bar? It's not going to mean shit to me. This is when you start finding out how much lifting massive weights is psychological. Because if you get used to seeing that weight on the bar all the time, you take that band off and your brain still thinks that that's what it was. So now you have this confidence to do it. you know. And I found that at the elite level. Um, I squatted my first 1,003 in 2006. 
And we had started playing with that light method, and I went to 1050 in six months. And the reason? Because I was used to seeing 1050 and 1100 on the bar from the light method, and I wasn't psychologically nervous about it at all because I was comfortable with it on the bar. You know? So, again, it's one of those things like um, it's just a psychological barrier breaker. If if done correctly in the right percentages, remember, I just said 100 pounds. It's taken off just enough of a percentage to make it where it's possible, but it's still hard as shit. But now my brain thinks that that's the weight that's got to be lifted. That puts it in pretty good context. So the way you explain that, I was going to take that actually into the next question. You've wrote a tremendous amount of articles, manuals. How are you able to take something so complex and break it down into terms that your everyday person can understand? Well, it's because everybody I train at both at my gym and out in my contracts with my fire departments, they don't have backgrounds in this. So if I come to them talking like I'm some scientist, they're not going to listen or do anything I tell them because they don't understand it. So for me, I learned really fast when I started working with the military in 06, 07. Those guys didn't have backgrounds in it either. I had to figure out a way to explain complex scenarios in a simplistic fashion where I was I was a dead fish in the water because um, the, the cognitive ability and because most of those guys don't have a passion in that, you're just trying to get the most out of what they can with what they have. Uh, you start to find that the, the guys that can, can, uh, can describe complex scenarios in a simplistic fashion are the real ones that know what they're talking about. You know, if you have to stay in that professor range for you to get your point across, you probably don't have enough real world experience to try to make it happen. And that's where I find it's a big problem right now, especially with the guys that only have that one, one of those three pillars, that high education level, they don't have any real world experience and they're not used to telling other people how to do something that's complex and a simplistic area, you know? I think Einstein talked about that all the time. If you can't take a complex idea and explain it to an average person, you probably don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and that seems to be where where there's a huge gap, getting guys that have the three pillars, like you said, that that took the education, took it to the to, took it to the gym, and then took it to the meet and proved that, hey, what I'm learning and what I'm doing is accurate. For me now, it's instead of proving it with numbers other than myself, I prove it with insurance data with the fire departments. You know, we got a couple of them. I've had three of them for five years and one of them for 15. And the average savings is about a quarter of a million to $300,000 a year in insurance premium savings compared to what they were paying before because they're stronger, smarter. Their their muscles are less imbalanced. So when they go pick up a heavy person, they got to carry them to the ambulance. It's not that big of a deal because they're stronger and they ought to do it better. You know, you figure you save a department, a couple of back injuries and a couple of knee injuries a year, you just paid for yourself times like 20, you know, and that's where really it sucks because it's not an advantage, but a real advantage to the rising cost of healthcare has really made what we do as far as with the fire departments and all this other stuff invaluable because, you know, if I'd be going to work with a department, charge them 50,000 a year, but it saves them 300,000. That's simple math. Yeah, they're getting a lot of bang for their buck on that deal. Right, exactly. Now, you worked with the Russians, and we talked about it earlier, and I had some questions kind of heading in this direction. Plyometrics and longevity, you know, they say as you get older, once you start hitting your 50s, your ability 
to jump and all that thing, all of those things decrease tremendously. If you're able to keep that capacity in and just never lose it, how do you think that carries over to your tactical units, your firefighters, things like that? Firefighters, especially because most firefighters get in and around their early mid twenties, but they got to stay active for 25 to 30 years. Military, it's not really a big deal because most of those guys are still slightly in their prime. You know, so really if you're 35 and still in the military, you're an old man, right? If you're 35 and in the fire service, you're young. So I find that some of that longevity thought process is a little bit more important when the career length is so much longer. Um, I find that a lot of people will screw up with applying metrics because the real importance is how high you can jump up, but not necessarily the impact on the way down. So if you notice, like if you watch a lot of my old videos, I do a lot of jumps up to foam blocks because when I land, it's soft. Um, I find that there's smarter ways to be powerful, but the problem with plyometrics and the reason it becomes dangerous as you get older is because maximal strength is decreasing. So if I'm, say, 40 and I have a two and a half times body weight squat, plyometrics aren't going to be shit. But if I'm only, say, say I'm a 200-pound man and I only squat 250, and now I'm out doing jumps and I don't understand virtual forces, i.e., you know, if you're, I don't know the exact math, I'd have to get out my stuff for it. But if you're 200 pounds and you jump down off of a 13-inch step off of a fire truck, you weigh double body weight when you hit the ground for an instant. The impact of force, only 13 inches. So if you're not strong enough to withstand that impact, the muscles can't withstand the, the impact. What takes it? The joints. So muscles protect joints because they're impact stabilizers, right? As well as contractile stabilizer, contractile properties and impact stabilizers or impact absorbers. So that's why maximal strength is so important is it helps the body resist impact and it puts it in to the actus and myosin cross bridges in the muscle tissue versus the actual joint. It's also why it's super important to have muscle balance from quadricep, hamstring, and glute activation. Biometrics innately are only dangerous when you only use one or two muscle groups to do the actual movement. But if I spread that energy over multiple muscle groups, then it's pretty safe. But as we well know, most people have severe muscle imbalances. They're not constantly staying up on them. And then what ends up happening is it calls the bluff card, right? Now, is that why we see depth jumps carry over to the field so well? Is for an instant that body has to absorb two times the weight of the person jumping. So now you're more accommodated to the big hits and things that go along with sports? Yeah, depth jumps is one tool. I think that if Verkashansky would have lived long enough and been around us, he's the godfather of plyometrics, bar none. And he would have saw the band squats that we were doing at high speed. He would have, he would have probably, I would have said, translated a little bit more of that into his plyometric style training. Uh, but he told me over the course of many of our talks that maximal strength is still the key component to power. So if you're not super strong, you can't really apply depth jumps were never really applied to the athlete until they were close to master of sport. That meant that they were almost damn near Olympic caliber. So that's not something you want to do with high school kids that aren't very strong. You know, but I find that a lot of people get a lot of benefit out of depth jumps because they're dealing with forces they'd be scared to lift. 
right? So if I jump down off, say, a 15-inch block, and I land, and that, let's say, it's 2.6 times body weight, and I weigh 200 pounds, was that 500? See? So it's, it starts to get to where the math, you start realizing, like, oh, shit, the depth jump's allowing these guys to lift more weight. The reason they're not scared of it is because they can't see the force. You know, when you got 500 pounds sitting on a bar, you're like, oh, shit, that's a lot of weight. But if you go and jump off of a 13-inch block and lean on the ground, what do you actually see? You don't see anything unless you have a force plate and you're watching the data when that impact happens. So it's a way to to get people that are afraid of big weights that go beyond the capacity in which they usually train. Now, Louie talked about that a little bit in his uh, running and sprinting book that he come out with that sprinting kind of does the same thing. You're putting those same applied forces in the ground. Nobody's scared of running, but, yeah, they're scared of 500 pounds on the bar, but you're getting the same effect. Well, it really, in sprinting, it's even worse because you're only doing it on one leg at a time. But everybody thinks running is safe and lifting is dangerous. Well, I'll tell you, and this is just my own, my own thought process. Obviously, we don't have enough long-term data in the United States. You go show me all the guys that were proficient runners – in their 50s and guys that were pretty smart with lifting in their 50s and trust me you're going to take the guy in their 50s that used to lift and not the guys that used to run on how beat up they are and a lot of it's because they're dealing with forces that they're not strong enough to where at powerlifting you're not going to squat a certain weight unless you're strong enough to do it but you can take a weak person and go run them even though they're probably not prepared to run so you find that the cumulative damage of runners is so much higher because they start weak you can't start weak and squat 600 pounds. You just bridged a, a huge gap that I've been working on for quite a while in my mind right there. Yeah, you're, you're running people that aren't really ready to be ran the way we do it. The weight room has to, the weight room has to be there to get them ready to absorb those forces. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, if you're going to try to be good at anything, you want to build tensile strength in the ligaments, tendons, and soft tissue. You want to build coordination in the weakest muscle groups so that they play their part when the movement happens. And then you want to teach technical proficiency in everything you do in a slow fashion before you increase velocity because power is going to increase impact. We're talking running, right? So you got to crawl. Before, you know, like you take a kid, let's say you take a kid that can barely even stand up. You don't teach them to run, right? You teach them to walk. Then they learn to kind of jog, and then they learn to run. But nobody does that with lifting or once they get up to where they want to be a good athlete, you know, crawl, walk, run. And I think that's the hardest part. And it doesn't matter how you apply that. You can apply it with running, lifting, any of that. But the key is, and my point, my opinion is crawling, once you've already, right, like get out of the infant stage, crawling is the ability to have every muscle do what it's supposed to do. Walking is applying that in multi-joint movements that allow our body to kind of coordinate every muscle group. And then running is performance. So if we spend the first six, eight months crawling, then the next 12 to 16, 20 months walking, now we have 10 years of running. You're definitely putting that into terms that I think are easy to see why the weight room is so important to the overall athlete and what they're doing on the field yeah don't start running start with crawling so when you go in you know hamstring curls you know machines that keep you in a perfect positioning then walk 
by getting into compound movements that are slower, methodical, and technically proficient, then turn the heat up once the motor patterns are set perfect and the imbalances are corrected, and you got a you got the best shot you possibly can have to get good. Now you touched on it there, and that was I mean I I've, I've got obviously I could ask you questions forever, but uh, hmm. developing the posterior chain in the athlete that seems to be a part that's overlooked. You know, glute ham raises, RDLs, everything that goes along with building that backside. To get where you got in your career, how important was it to hit all those accessories and build a huge posterior chain? Well, it's massive. I mean, if you saw on my Instagram, I just posted a picture of my back. Uh, was it yesterday, I think? And most people's leg power is never truly seen because their posterior chain isn't strong enough to support it. So a lot of people, you ever heard of Lieber's Law of Minimum? Have you ever seen that? I don't think I have. It was, look it up, but it was situated in agriculture, but it shows a barrel and it's got, you know, like a whiskey barrel and it's got all these long wooden strips and it shows it being filled with water. And where the water comes out is the shortest point of those strips. And that's the limiting factor. Why it's agriculture is they were saying that that was the important part of nutrients in the soil. So if you have a ton of nitrogen in the soil, but you're missing three or four other components in the soil, those are the limiting factors to the plant growth. It's the same thing with muscle, right? Or movements and perspective, meaning if I want to be a strong squatter and I keep working on all my strengths and avoiding my weaknesses, all of that energy is leaking out of those other areas because they're not proficient enough to hold their own level of water, right, if, as far as that thought process is concerned. That's actually in my book. It goes into a pretty decent explanation to it. But the point is, is that you, your weakest links are always going to be your limiting factors. And that's where everybody has to stay very tuned in, right? Compound movements are even more important with those weaknesses because if I don't have hamstrings, I'm going to squat like I don't have hamstrings when it gets heavy. The body's very smart and stupid in the same sense that it tries to find the cheapest way to do something. And usually the cheapest way to do it is to focus on your strengths, right? So if I'm focusing on my weaknesses, it's allowing me to get strong with less energy. Now, why that's important is you have what's called active reserve, called a car is what the Russians call it, C-A-R. It's not a car you drive, but it's a car of focusing on my weaknesses. I can use less energy to do those particular exercises because they're weak points, but the benefit is tenfold versus if I go work on my strengths and what I'm good at, then it's still going to limit my, my weaknesses are still my limiting factor and I'm really wasting energy. So it's kind of like kinking a garden hose to stop the water flow, but having holes all down through your hose, everywhere you have a hole in your hose, you have to seal that up. Yep, exactly. And those holes are different weaknesses. So your kink would be your strength level. And the weakness is all those holes leaking, all that pressure, right? And you're focused on the kink, but you're not focused on all those little holes to make the pressure strong enough when the, you know, to make the movement go up. Now you were, you were talking about your back and, and the Instagram picture, which is really incredible. And I've also heard you talk about this. How much of a role does that upper back play in your bench press? I've heard you say that you need to train your back two times what you, chain, what you train your chest. 
Yeah, that's the minimum. Um, think of the upper back. Okay, think of the upper back like the brakes on a race car, right? Like you get a little, you get a punk kid that doesn't understand anything about how going fast in a car, and the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to want to put a bigger engine in it, nitrous, right? Like a new shifter, uh, you know, a bigger pulley on the supercharger, whatever it may be. But in reality, the limiting factor for most people is the brakes. So you can only accelerate what you can deaccelerate from. The upper back is the predominant factor of bracing the body's ability to press. So I look at the brakes of a car or the tire traction and horsepower, right? And that gets a little bit out of control thought process-wise, but think about it. I can have a 1,000 horsepower engine, but if I can't put it to the, to the road with the tires, it doesn't matter. It's the limiting factor. And the upper back, if it can't stay tight and give you a good, solid base or pavement to grip the tires on, you're not going to, you're going to be leaking power everywhere. So the upper back is the, the most important thing in the bench press at first. Plus the upper back has to stay tight enough to overpower scapular control from the pec. Because see, for normal people, I don't know if you can see in the video, but for normal people, when you go to press heavy, if you have a weak upper back, you're going to throw your shoulders forward. If my back's super strong, it's going to stay this way. Now, that allows me to just hinge on my elbow, which we both know. We don't hear people coming in a bitch and, oh, man, I blew my tricep off on the bench. It happens, but not very often. Most times, it's, oh, I tore my shoulder up. Why? Because your upper back wasn't strong enough to sustain positioning while you were pressing. and allowing allows the pec to put the scapula forward or in a, in a you know, a anterior position, which tears the rotator cuff up. It doesn't matter what gym you walk into and you watch people bench press. Almost every, t- every time when they get up off the bench press, the first place they grab is their shoulder. It's never their pec or their tricep, like you said. It's always the shoulder. So to minimize that, you have to have your back stronger so that it can override that. It overrides it, it protects it, and it forces you in the right position. There's no choice. You know, when I, when I take the bench out and lock my lats in, I don't have anywhere to go but up and down. I can't do all this rotational shit. I can't push it over my face. Everything has to stay in a straighter line in a better mechanical position. Therefore, I've never had a shoulder problem. So it's, you know, but it's the hardest thing to teach people because it's not the short way, it's the long way. Now, in everything you've done, developing hips in athletes how how important is that on the grand scheme of things it seems like you know a lot of injuries are being taken by athletes from hip flexors things like that on the front side how do you develop the hip where it can take those forces and prolong their season well you know the hips also heavily tied hip activation is also heavily tied into back issues which we started the podcast on as 80% of the people population or athletes are going to have a huge issue with. So although we do see hip flexor issues, a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times wherever you got hurt, look at the other side is the problem, right? So if I hurt my hip flexor, maybe it's because my glutes not turning on correctly and it puts my hip in a bad position. Now my hip flexor is pissed off because that anterior rotation of the hip. So I find that hip power is the connecting factor between the torso, not only in location, but just in muscle activation between the torso and the leg power. So nobody has weak leg extenders, but their flexors, right, 
and their glutes don't function correctly. Therefore, you have an anterior dominant issue already, which is changing technique and causing injury. So I find that the glutes are the tying factor. But tell me, like you've, you've been around a while, tell me this. When have you ever seen anybody that has super developed glutes that doesn't have hamstrings? They have both. So the glutes and the hamstrings all play an integral part. But I've seen tons of guys that have strong quads and weak as shit happens. That's what I was getting ready to say. Yeah, every gym has a quad monster in there and, and small hamstrings. Small hamstrings and not very good glutes and a very prone to injury lower back, which is caused by the knees over toes squatting, which if I could do anything, which, you know, I, I try not to get on too big of a tangent on that, but there are a handful of people out in this, uh, out in this particular field that literally need ran over by a car. And one of them is knees over toes because he, although he has a lot of the ideas right with his accessory work, that extreme knee extension over your toe is basically, if you want to break it down into application, when have you seen anybody that has weak quads? You don't. It's always the other side. And when you're telling somebody to squat that way, it's all quads. You know, and I don't understand how hard that is to figure out for people. You know, but and again, like what muscle does that person have? We go back to the exact same point. How strong are you? What's your education and how long did you stay that strong? I remember I did that podcast with Mark Bell like last year and they were asking about it. I'm like, dude, he trapped Bardellis 470. That's not even a good bench. I don't understand why anybody wants to listen to this fucking guy. You know what I mean? But I'm just like, you know, whatever. Yeah, it does. And And you opened up an area I was wanting to go into anyhow. So that worked out perfectly now. Well, here's the thing. When you do that extreme knees over toes, I get it for Olympic lifting. You have to catch snatches and cleans. That that means that the bar can only come up so high and you have to catch it. Well, with that being said, those extreme joint angles are absolutely necessary. You show me one sport that goes that deep and that forward in anything. Basketball, not even close. Football, never. Right, NHL hockey never. What other sport other than Olympic lifting ever goes that deep? Yeah, there isn't one. There's really no need to. I mean, it's so not, what's the transfer? Right. That that would be my question. Well, that's what I don't understand. What the hell is the transfer? I, I I can't understand why. Maybe it's just a fad thing. But like I said, I am not against that style of squatting every once in a while. But when you prescribe it all the time and think it's the fix and bees knees for everything, you've lost your fucking mind. There's no way that that's going to work because I can go to elevated heel, let my knee go over my toe and still squat 600 for reps. But I also squat 900 with my shin straight. It's just interesting that people just fall for this shit. I have a gym here and we started during COVID for athletes and we used a lot of your information, yours and Dave Tate. You guys have been super generous with what you know and putting it on there. And saying that I watched, a video to get ready for this podcast. You had a high school kid in working on his squat that you just posted not too long ago. Yeah. Developing that knee out squat. My, my question is, and you brought up Mark Bell too. Mark Bell has a hip circle, but if you would ban their legs with, with that, so they can feel the drive out into the band and the bottom of the squat, setting their legs against that band and driving up to teach a young squatter, how do you, how would you feel about that sort of method? Well, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I have a counter argument to that. Here's the deal. 
when you use an external stimulus to find positioning, what are you actually learning? Because if you need to feel something versus potentiate the right muscle groups without those external environments, I think the transfer over to athleticism is going to be marginal. And it might not transfer over when you take it off because now they're looking for an external cue versus actually learning how to control the muscles. So I'm not saying it's not a bad idea every once in a while, but I wouldn't do that with kids. They need to learn how to control that without the external stimulus. And that makes sense. And it was something I'd been toying around with every once in a while. We'll put a band on to work on uh, adductors or whatever. You know, we do it very rarely. But a I didn't know what carryover it would have, if any. So you were the guy to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there would be, it's definitely a tool that you could utilize. But what I would do is put that hip circle on, not through the compound movement and just teach them to push out, sitting in a chair, you know, take that, take that hip circle and just push out, push out for four sets of 25 might be a good buildup for a winning warmup. Then go into the movement when those muscles are already tied in to the central nervous system and then plug it into your compound movement. Okay. And that, and that's a great piece of advice because I was actually looking for some winning warm up tips for the squat deadlift day, something like that. That would be amazing. So the big tip for winning warmups is figure out which muscle groups you feel are not providing the right amount of help. So for kids for in general or novice athletes, abdominal bracing is going to be a huge problem. Upper torso posture is going to be a huge issue because everybody sits down all day. Hamstring glute activation is always going to be a limiting factor. Um, and then tie those into your warm-ups. And then what you'll start to find is that technique will start to get better because those muscle groups are playing, again, like we talked about. My opinion is technique is developed from the body trying to find the most, what they think at the time, what your body thinks at the time is the most efficient way to move. That's why I get so pissed when I see people post and say, well, just squat the way it feels right. Well, if that's the case, but people's bodies don't naturally bend correctly because they have too many weaknesses and imbalances. So you have to go back and go further than that and go, okay, let's fix all these weaknesses and plug them into the compound movement, then learn how to squat correctly. Again, crawl, walk, run. And, Putting all that into perspective is, is I, I guess, where people really get lost. There's so much information out there that they almost can't see the forest because of the trees. So finding videos yeah. that you put out and Dave Tate and, and guys of, of your ability and stature, I know they've helped us tremendously. And I, I can't say thank you enough for all the content you put out there. Yeah, it gets frustrating sometimes because you want so many more people to listen and help. Because, you know, there's only so much you can do the older you get you start realizing how limited your time around really is and uh you know it sucks because i felt like i would have um, helped so many more people by now that people would listen but you find that you're just fighting so many so many other different areas and you're always constantly fighting with um, these new techniques and these new ideas and there's no proof that they are any good and the people that are selling these new ideas only last six or 10 months in the field and they're automatically magically gone. It's just like, God damn, dude. Like, you know, and nobody wants to listen to longevity. Like again, what Ed Cohen did to me, Oh, you're going to be like really good in like six or eight years. And I was already, you know, American record holder. And for most people that would have been a deflator. And for me, I was like, ah, fuck it. Cool. Whatever. You know, if it takes me six or eight years to be the best, I'll, 
train six or eight years. I don't care. But see, that's not most people's mindset. And that's why you see guys like, again, I don't like throwing people on the bus, but you see guys like Larry Wheels and Chad Wesley Smith. You're all retiring in your mid-20s. You should be just starting your prime if you train smart. And people can't even see it. You know what I mean? And then you're like, do I really need to, Is it, are, are people really that cognitively limited that they can't see it? Yeah, we live a long life. So the longer that we can stay active and keep lifting, keep in shape is going to create a better life. You got to look at the people that can create high performance, but also extreme longevity. Because then that applies, their methods can apply to nearly everyone. The people that are only worried about extreme numbers for very short periods of time, you shouldn't use those types of systems because they're not going to be in any way, shape, or form conducive for longevity at all. Well, now I know, you know, I've had you on here quite a while. You've answered every question I have. I was going to kind of wrap up with this, but it's something that I was curious about watching, you know, West Side versus the world, watching your videos, watching Dave Tate. You guys in that gym, even out of the gym, were became very successful people. What was the driving characteristic that, that allowed you to transfer out of that into the world and be so successful? Well, I can't vouch for Dave, but I can, I can imagine what his position is on stuff. Um, I can tell you from my personal experience is that powerlifting taught me that everything was going to take time and patience. And, and the small details matter. Um, when you have that mindset, you can apply it to nearly everything, including business. Um, you know, everything that I started with on my business, nothing was immediately successful. It just takes time. And I think the problem that we have now with our population and kids and, you know, like again, youth and all that is that everybody wants instant gratification of something right now. And what you find with powerlifting in general um, is that that's simply not the case in nearly anything in life that's valuable. If you want to be strong, it's probably going to take time unless you're a freak. If you want to be successful in business, you're probably going to have to grind for a decade or maybe two decades. And so for me, it was putting powerlifting put everything in perspective that the length of time didn't matter, but the ultimate goal did. And so um, there's, ups and downs and everything that you do, including lifting and what you learn with powerlifting for me was it didn't matter if it was a good day or a bad day. What mattered is you showed up and put in what you had. And if you do that every day from what you're trying to apply, whether it's business or strength training, you're going to be successful. Some people might be successful sooner. Some people might be successful later. But at the end of the day, if you have that mindset, you will be the best you can be at whatever you're trying to do. The attention to the details and the small things, I can see where that would be crucial in becoming successful, no matter, no matter what it is. Like you said earlier, if it's digging ditches, that aspect carries over to all parts of life. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know a guy that is a pretty good friend of mine that's an excavator. I mean, all they do is take big dump trucks and dig out holes, and he makes like $5 million a year because he's the best in the, in the, in the area with it. And so everybody wants him to do the job because he won't screw it up. Everything's perfect. And he won't settle for anything less. Now, having that mindset is going to be very difficult because you're going to run into a lot of people that necessarily don't have that mindset. And so workers, interns, assistants uh, is very difficult because when you're that meticulous, it's very hard to get along with mediocrity. And then they go and tell everybody that uh, 
hey, that guy, he's just hard to work with. He's an asshole or whatever. But in reality, it's he's a perfectionist and wants to get big shit done. And I'm average and I suck. I can see that. So it's just easier to say, oh, he's hard to work with. Well, I appreciate your time. I know it's valuable to come on my podcast and sit around and talk about all the things you did. I can't say thank you enough. So not a problem, buddy. Well, I hope you have a great rest of your day. And thanks again. Okay.